Alan. I'm Chris Hudo. Uh, I'm an attorney at Foley HOAG. I'm uh, I, I am a, a, a counsel in the Labor and Employment Department, and I'm also the co-chair of Foley HOAG's COVID-19 uh, Task Force. So um, I'm going to be moderating today, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you um, personally for um, forcing me to um, get out get out of my sweatpants and. Um, and um and get to interact with people um at least uh to uh at least through the uh through uh zoom um we really appreciate it as you know um if you're joining us there has been a lot happening very 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 quickly um and um both at the federal and state level so the the program today is designed to give you an overview of everything that's happening um, at the state and federal levels um, as of today um, that people may have seen that the stimulus bill has been agreed to in the Senate. We're not going to be covering that today, but I expect that's going to be covered in a um, subsequent um, BBA webinar. Uh, but um, generally, we're going to be focusing on the state and the federal level, um, broken up by pieces of legislation. Just um, a reminder that um, that a lot of these um, laws, some of the guidance that's been issued is in flux. Um, we don't have certain answers about how certain laws are going to apply. Um, I think some agencies have done better than others at giving us some certainty. I know um, we're expecting on the Families First uh, Coronavirus Response Act, we're expecting some regulations to be issued before next week that'll um, answer a lot of questions about how it's going to be applied. So. Um, in terms of what well, we welcome questions, getting into specific factual scenarios and um, hypotheticals is going to be <laughs> may, may prove challenging for the uh, for the panelists. So, um, uh, but you know, we welcome questions and uh, we'll give you our best answers to the extent that we have the information that's available to us. And at that this point, I'm going to turn it over to uh, my colleague. Nate Goldstein, who's going to be uh, from Siegel Reitman, who's going to talk to us, get us started talking about the um, the Family First uh, Coronavirus Response Act, which was passed uh, last week and signed into law by President Trump. Uh, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good noon, I guess. Um, thanks for joining us. I can't see any of you, so it sort of seems like I'm talking to myself. Uh, which is helpful from a, if anyone has um, any apprehension with uh, public speaking. Um, the, bear with me as we, uh, as we work on this technology. I, we did have a dry run on it, but it is new to, to uh, all of us. Um, with that said, uh, so my, my uh, topic that I'm presenting on today is the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. As Chris said, it is very new, uh, and uh, the, including guidance that was coming out uh, late yesterday afternoon and evening, um, none of which answers all or many of the questions concerning it, but we're going to go over the highlights here and try to uh, answer any questions that, uh, or answer some questions that people have. Uh, the act was passed on uh, last week, on March 18, 2020. Uh, it covers private employers uh, with less than 500 employees. Um, the, it also covers public sector employees under uh, Title II of the FM, FMLA, which is, um, for all intents and purposes, most federal employees, not including uh, the Postal Service. Um, Employers of less than uh, 50 will be able to, um, to apply for an exemption under the act um, to be excluded from these requirements uh, or for the, for the requirements of, uh, of leave for childcare. Um, but the details of that exemption are, are remain to be seen. Um, uh, we had someone send in a question uh, ahead of time on this issue. The standard uh, for seeking the exemption 
is whether the leave would jeopardize the viability of the business uh, as an ongoing concern. There's really no guidance on what that means yet. Uh, as I mentioned, DOL did put out guidance to try to start addressing some of these questions. Uh, they did at least address this issue, um, but only to note uh, that an employer should keep documentation to substantiate this exemption, uh, but not send it in to DOL for the time being. So I, I don't think that, um, I, 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 there's just not much out there yet on how uh, an employer might satisfy this exemption. Um, the coverage also does include uh, healthcare employees, uh, and emergency, uh, exclude, excuse me, uh, uh, healthcare employees and emergency responders. Uh, it is effective beginning April 1st uh, and going through December 31st, 2020. Uh, there was some uh, small, there was some question about when the effective date would be. Um, by the literal terms, it could have been read as April 2nd. Uh, DOL did put out guidance last night uh, to clarify that it was effective April 1st. Um, the DOL will also issue a temporary non-enforcement policy uh, to provide uh, employers safe harbor or employers who attempt to comply with the requirements of the act in good faith uh, will, will receive a, temp, uh, a temporary safe harbor uh, for 30 days following the effective date of the act. Um, qualifying employees uh, uh, under the Act are those subject to a government quarantine or isolation order, uh, those advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine, um, employees uh, that are symptomatic and seeking diagnosis, uh, no, no clarification in the Act on what symptomatic might mean or none that I've seen, uh, and those caring for individuals subject to an isolating isolation order or self-quarantining. Uh, importantly, employees caring for a child because of school or daycare closure. This is a, a big one and one that ties into um, the, F, the expanded FMLA under the Act, which I'll get to uh, next. Um, and lastly, uh, employees experiencing substantially similar conditions um, to COVID-19 as specified by Health and Human Services, the, the Health and Human Services Department, in conjunction with guidance from Labor and Treasury. Uh, to avail uh, themselves of, excuse me, to avail themselves of the uh, paid sick leave under the Act, uh, there is no uh, restrictions on length of service from, uh, for employees. Beginning April 1st, it is effective immediately. They do not have to accrue this time. Uh, the, the sick leave under the Act is um, for a length up to 80 hours, so two weeks for a regular full-time employee. Uh, for part-time employees, it's based on the average hours worked over a two-week period. Uh, there is some guidance that has come out on how to calculate uh, the amount of leave for part-time employees. Uh, if you, if the uh, part-time employee uh, has not worked uh, in the last two weeks. An employer can calculate it using the average two-hour span over the last six months. And there's further detail in the guidance, I believe, that DOL put out uh, last, uh, last night on how to calculate this if people are interested. Um, and in the rate uh, for, the well, the rate, there's two different um, rates uh, for the paid sick leave under the Act. For employees subject to an isolation quarantine or a quarantine order or who are symptomatic, uh, the employee is entitled to receive the regular rate uh, up to $511 per day with a $5,110 maximum. Uh, this rate, regular rate, does include, uh, is supposed to incorporate an, uh, an employee's previous overtime hours when you determine the rate. So, Previous overtime hours are included in the calculation of the regular rate. Uh, remains to be seen or whether, whether you have to pay an employee overtime uh, for those hours uh, under, the, under the sick leave. Uh, I, I don't believe you do. Um, child care, uh, care uh, 
employees providing uh, caregiving, uh, childcare uh, that have to take care of their kids, or are, su are su having symptoms under uh, HHS prescribed guidance, are entitled to only to two-thirds of their pay, uh, two-thirds of their pay with a maximum of $200 per day uh, and a $2,000 uh, maximum. Uh, the rate uh, to the, the rate to use is an employee's regular rate or state or federal minimum wage if that the state or federal minimum wage is greater. Uh, this sick leave cannot be carried over year to year, and there is no right of reimbursement upon separation of service. Uh, under under the act, there are the typical uh, employee protections that we uh, we like to see the anti retaliation retaliation provisions, uh, job restoration protections. This applies not just to the sick leave, uh, but to the expanded FMLA leave. Um, an employee cannot be required to find a replacement for, uh, for, the, uh, for the position and cannot be required to use uh, accrued sick leave before availing themselves of the um, paid sick leave under the act. Uh, the right of action uh, for violations of this act is under the FLSA. Uh, so you're, we're talking liquidated damages, attorney's fees, uh, and the like. Uh, this is something, this is just my opinion of it, but there would also be likely a claim under mass wage law for uh, under sort of the framework uh, that we've seen for say, overtime violations. Um, uh, uh, overtime violations in restaurants uh, under the non-payment of wages uh, provision of the uh, Act. FMLA expansion. Um, FMLA, the FMLA was expanded under the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, uh, at least temporarily. Uh, qualifying employees are those employees caring for a child uh, because of school or daycare closure. Um, Unlike the sick leave, there is a qualifying period for this. Uh, employees must have been employed for at least 30 days uh, prior to when they begin taking uh, the FMLA. Uh, the benefits uh, under the expanded FMLA leave are uh, after the two week waiting period, uh, employees entitled to 10 weeks uh, of, at two thirds the regular rate of pay up to $200 per day or uh, and a ten thousand dollar maximum. So the the the, uh, leave, the benefit afforded under this provision tracks uh, the uh, the entitlement under the sick leave uh, portion of uh, of of the act for people uh, taking care of children uh, because of school closure or because of daycare closure. Uh, for the for the two week waiting period before an employee can begin taking this leave, uh, employees may use the sick leave uh, that the Act provides. This was possibly an open question prior to guidance that DOL issued last night, uh, but the guidance that DOL issued did make clear uh, that an employee can use uh, the two-week sick leave under the Act for that two-week waiting period. They can also use other accrued leave if they have it. Uh, Part-time employees, the calculation is similar uh, to what I had already uh, discussed um, for how to calculate um, under the uh, sick leave provision. Tax credits. Uh, an employer uh, is entitled uh, Nate, to before we uh, Sorry to jump in. A, qu a question that's been coming up is, um, regarding the FMLA piece is whether it can be used intermittently. Do you have a perspective on that? Uh, yep. Uh, so that's a good question. I have perspective on it. Uh, I don't have an answer for it. Um, but under the terms of uh, the, under the, the literal terms of the act, and it's actually on the slide uh, later on, uh, there is, I, I think, a very fair reading of it, um, it probably the best reading of it is that uh, it does not have to be uh, leave that's continuously taken. Um, it can be staggered, um, which in a practical sense comports with the reality that we are all in, uh, 
Uh, there are plenty of people that are home working, but they're also working with children. Um, and so how everyone juggles that, um, A, remains to be seen. B, it sort of presupposes that they can do some work, but possibly not all work. So under the language of the statute, it does suggest that the leave that can be taken, at least in my opinion, uh, does not have to be uh, continuous. I, I don't know if uh, Chris or Jack have to have a different or similar perspective. Nate, I would just um, chime in from the employer perspective to essentially agree with you that I think it's it's probably somewhat unclear at this point. And so, um, you know, whether that ends up being something that ends up uh, being an issue of dispute is probably not known. But I would, I would caution employers that um, all of this has been passed as a remedial act. And so I think the employer side and the employee side can, can likely agree um, that this is, will be read in some ways, likely to be read uh, will be read in a, in a fairly liberal manner in favor of the employee. And, and the, the entire act is really structured uh, not so much around um, the employee employer's rights, but in terms of what the employee is entitled to based upon whether they fit into one of those buckets in terms of having the condition, having the uh, virus, needing to care some, for someone with the virus. So I think it, it is very likely to see that it can be uh, done uh, intermittently, and that's where the DOL regulations are really going to be helpful. So their their guidance was extremely helpful, uh, but we're waiting on those regulations, which I think will will hopefully give us some cl real clarity on that. Okay, um, Chris, are there any other uh, questions we should address now, or uh, continue to the to the credit piece? You're on mute, Chris. Sorry, I have to unmute on two <laughs> two ways. You can hear me now, right? Yes. Um, so yeah, no, no. There are questions, but I think those can be reserved until till the end. And we'll get to as many as we can. But I know that was almost that was popping up quite frequently. Great. There's just one I see that I could just. Someone asked if there's a sample employee notice yet. That from the DOL. That's supposed to come out today. So I haven't seen it yet, but I believe it should be out today. Okay, uh, tax credits. Uh, an employer is entitled to a payroll tax credit uh, equivalent to the employee wage benefit. Uh, the payroll taxes, uh, eligible payroll taxes, uh, include federal income tax and the employer employee share of Social Security and Medicare. If payroll tax is insufficient to cover the cost, and I think this is a relevant one, employers may request a particularly relevant one. Uh, an employer may request accelerated payments from the IRS. And in the guidance that the IRS has issued for this, there are a few examples um, that, that can be helpful. Um, the IRS has said that they will try to, uh, to uh, resolve their payments within two weeks of the request. Um, uh, Nate? Nate? Uh, this is yep. from the BBA. We're having your audio um, cut out quite a bit, so could we pause for just a moment and have you switch to phone um, so we can see if we can get a better connection? Yes. Okay. Uh, stand by, everyone. Um, we're going to try and uh, resolve the audio issue here. Just give us a moment.
Okay, can you hear me? Yes, Nate, that's better. Thank you. Okay. All right, let me see if I can get this back up and running. Okay, all set. Uh, Jack or Chris, you can uh, thumbs up. Thumbs up, Nate. Okay. Um, sorry, everyone. Um, all right, on the tax credit, uh, I believe I left off uh, at the IRS uh, was going to try to accelerate payments if uh, payroll tax was uh, withholding payroll tax would be insufficient to cover the cost of these benefits. Uh, the last thing, the last issue on this piece uh, is that an employer is entitled to an additional credit under the Act uh, for the health for an employee's health benefit. So far, there has been no guidance on how uh, how uh, this will work. Um, I do suspect uh, it will be forthcoming uh, in the near term, given the importance of that piece uh, to the overall arrangement. Um, finally, a sort of catch-all of other uh, uh, sick leave and FMLA issues under the Act self-employed um, workers are entitled to a similar benefit under the Act. Uh, it's a little bit different in that uh, they are entitled to the lesser of the statutory caps that I discussed previously or the average of their, da their average daily income. Uh, self-employed individuals also do have an additional record-keeping requirement under uh, under the act uh, to substantiate uh, the, the hardship. Um, Multi-employer plans, uh, signatory employers uh, to uh, CBAs that provide uh, similar benefits or equivalent benefits uh, as those uh, provided under the act may opt out of providing the sick leave or the FMLA, FMLA leave, uh, but again, it does have to be an equivalent benefit. Uh, employees uh, must provide reasonable uh, reasonable notice for the sick leave, practical notice uh, for the FMLA leave to employers. Uh, as Chris, uh, the question Chris raised uh, is the staggered leave, and while it remains to be seen whether that is or is not going to be permissible, I think a good reading of the statute is that it is permissible. The last uh, question that uh, I and the other panelists have discussed before is what constitutes uh, quarantine or isolation order uh, for the purposes of the sick leave. Again, for uh, if you are subject to a isolation order or quarantine, um, that does entitle you to the full benefit uh, for those uh, for those two weeks of, of sick leave. Um, does uh, the Massachusetts order that came down recently qualify? Um, I don't have a good answer for that, or I don't have a definitive answer for that. Uh, we did do we did uh, do some uh, research into it. I think for the best uh, the best reading of it is that it does qualify as a quarantine or, or an isolation order. It's hard to imagine uh, what type of order uh, Governor Baker's order would be other than uh, some some sort of isolation order. Uh, but that has not been, as far as I know, uh, definitively addressed. Um, but I do think Jack is going to get into Governor Baker's order uh, shortly uh, and might be able to provide um, more daylight on that. He, uh, Nate, um, just to jump in here, yeah, I think a lot of um, this is one of the things we're hoping that the DOL is going to address because I know that um, even internally in my firm, I think that, um, you know, that attorneys are of different views on this. And so my view is until we have further guidance, my best guess is that if somebody is not working due to Governor Baker's order, my perspective on that is um, that probably that would be an entitlement to, um, that would be a, an order that would entitle somebody to the sick leave benefits. But I know um, a lot of people um, have different perspectives on that, but again, hoping we get some guidance from the DOL on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think this is my last slide, and I'll try to go quickly because we have a limited amount of time and a lot more to cover. 
uh, unemployment insurance under the Families First Act. Uh, the, the, uh, the Act does provide $1 billion in emergency grants uh, allocated to the states. Half of that is for administrative assistance, technical assistance, and the like. Half is to states experiencing at least a 10% increase in unemployment, provided that those states temporarily ease certain requirements, threshold requirements for seeking unemployment, um, work, work search for obvious reasons, uh, waiting periods. I believe in Massachusetts, the waiting period has been um, eliminated. Uh, and uh, UI tag and, and the uh, at least temporary uh, restriction of UI of unemployment tax increases uh, for employee uh, employers with high layoff rates. Uh, under the Act, uh, the government will also the federal government will also pay 100% of extended UI benefits. That's 26 weeks uh, uh, is the extended uh, the extended UI benefits. So whereas prior to this act, uh, states would be required to put 50% of the bill for those extra, first you get 26 weeks, then you get another 26 weeks. Um, under the, uh, under uh, prior to this act, states were going to have to fit, put 50% of the bill under, under the act, the federal government will be paying full freight. Um, lastly, uh, the Act provides interest-free loans uh, to states um, to pay the UI benefits uh, for, uh, for uh, 2020. Um, and with that, I believe that's my last slide for now. I'm going to turn it over to Chris. Thanks, Nate. And just going back to one issue, a question that came up is, if an employee is on currently on a furlough, would that person be entitled to the sick leave benefits under the Families First Act? Um, my perspective on that would be if, if they are, it depends on the reason for the furlough. I mean, so I think there's been a lot of confusion about the use of the term furlough and temporary layoff during this period of time. My view is if somebody is temporarily laid off, is laid off before the, the effective date, before April 1st, my view is that somebody would not be entitled to these sick leave benefits if that has happened beforehand. Um, however, if they remain an employee during the, um, as of April 1st, um, and they're out of work due to one of the following, one of the reasons enumerated in the statute, I think they would probably be entitled to the leave. Now, if the company issued a furlough for business reasons, um, prior to that date or decides to do that for business reasons after the date, I think that you would have an argument that the person wouldn't be entitled to because wouldn't be entitled to leave because one of those reasons, it, the reason the person isn't working is a business decision of the employer rather than um, one of the enumerated reasons in the statute. Do, Nate, would, do you disagree with that? Uh, no, I mean, I think the caveat for all of this is that it's just an open question on how it all works. I think one one point to note, which is consistent with what Chris just said, is that uh, the leave under the Act is, uh, it, it, you can't, it's, it, an employer does not have to pay it out at the end of this. So um, if, if, um, if there is a business reason related to the furlough, um, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure what the recourse, frankly, is under the Act. I, I, my, as an aside, my personal feeling is that, you know, while I, I may dispute how, whether this was a strong enough Act to, to, to address the critical issues that we're dealing with, um, it was intended to provide incentive for, um, you know, employees, for employers to, employees to, to, to find a, a, a way, at least a temporary way through this together. Okay, thanks, Nate. Um, so I'm gonna go through my slides pretty quickly um, so we can get to Jack talking about the mass state stuff because I know a lot of people have questions about that. So um, if we could jump to the next slide. Thank, thank you, Nate. So, um, so 
in case people haven't seen it, the EEOC issued some guidance on um, COVID-19 and how it interacts with the ADA. Um, it was clear, a couple of key points to take away from that. One, um, it was clear that uh, an employer, the ADA said, uh, the EEOC says that an employer can ask employees if they're experiencing symptoms of COVID-19, provided that the same rule applies that they have to maintain all information they receive as a confidential medical record. Um, I, I would recommend um, having some type of authorization in place, similar to a HIPAA authorization, in case something needs to be communicated with respect to um, keeping the workplace safe. But the EEOC was clear that if it was related to keeping the workplace safe, you can ask specifically if employees are experiencing the symptoms of COVID, so, so that cough, fever, shortness of breath. Um, employers can measure employees' body temperatures. I question the efficacy of, of that approach. Um, since um, we've been, since the reports all coming out is that people are asymptomatic and spreading the virus. Um, so um, I think if you want to, as a peace of mind, making sure people who, uh, who are actively sick are not coming to work, um, the, EE, the EEOC says that would be, that would be permissible. Um, the, the, an employer, the EEOC said, may require employees to stay home if they have COVID symptoms. I think that's pretty non-controversial. Um, um, but the EEOC also said under the ADA, there's nothing in the ADA would prevent an employer from requiring a sick employer, employee from, from providing a fitness for duty certification, from requiring a fitness for duty certification before the employee returns to work. Um, but um, uh, two reasons. One, um, it's it fault. The EEOC takes the perspective that it's not even really covered under the ADA, um, the, the ADA because of um, the nature of COVID-19. Um, but secondly, because even if it were, it would be um, protected under the need, the, the exceptions under the ADA inquiries to, to protect the health and safety of, of your workforce. Um, and um, Finally, but, but the, the EEOC was clear, employers need to be flexible because in this, the, the, given the demands that are on healthcare professionals now, um, you, you can't expect everyone to go just walk into the doctor's office and get a doctor's note and get a doctor to fill out a fitness for duty certification. There needs to be some sort of flexibility. Um, the EEOC takes uh, references accepting an email, not requiring a signed signature, so it just, the EESC wants to see employers being flexible. And then finally, remember, this should go without saying, um, you still have to engage in the interactive process with employees who are disabled, um, who may request accommodations um, in light of the risks um, posed by COVID-19. So people who have disabilities that makes them immunosuppressed um, may ask to work from home, may ask for longer leaves of absence in those situations, you need to engage in the interactive process as you always would under, um, under the ADA. And then the next one, which I will um, flip to is on the next slide is um, regarding the, the NLRB. The NLRB had proposed new election procedures in December of 2019. They're supposed to take effect on eight, um, April 16th. Uh, and they have delayed those until uh, at least June 1st. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see a further delay, but um, the general summaries about those about the rule changes are on the slide if you aren't um, up to date on those. And um, uh, and um, so with that, I will turn it over to Jack. Thank you very much, Chris, and hello, everybody. Hope everybody's doing okay and safe out there. It feels great to put a shirt and jacket on today for this presentation, and uh, I know it's been a real challenge for everybody getting back to work. I'm, I'm going to talk about the Massachusetts response. Um, before I do, I'll just add that I, I agree with what Nate and, and Chris were saying in terms of if there was a furlough or a layoff prior to the act, I, I, I think there's, it's unlikely there'd be eligibility. On the other hand, the, the DOL uh, Q&A specifically says, if you've already given someone sick leave, 
um, due to one of the reasons that's listed in terms of uh, needing to be quarantined, uh, having a health issue, having something related to COVID-19, um, that doesn't mean you've exhausted, that doesn't mean you don't have to give uh, the new sick leave under the new law that comes into effect. The, the guidance is clear on that, that this is a brand new uh, sick leave and brand new uh, entitlement, if you will, so just because you granted leave previously under your existing sick law plan, that doesn't mean that you don't have to now do it uh, effective April 1st. And, and very notable that it is April 1st, uh, as opposed to what we all thought it was gonna be April 2nd. Um, so in terms, so, you know, Chris and Nate covered, and, and um, they covered the Family First, Families First Act in great detail. I'm gonna talk about what's happening in Massachusetts. So I, as I think, most folks know, on March 23rd, 2020, Governor Baker issued an emergency order requiring all businesses and organizations that do not provide COVID-19s to close up their physical workspaces. Um, and this is, became effective March 24 to Tuesday, April 7th. Um, essentially, businesses and organizations are required to close up their brick and mortar premises. So. This is a little different than what some other states have done in terms of a, a broader complete shutdown order, which is often being called the shelter in place order. We don't have that in Massachusetts and Governor Baker specifically noted in his press conference that he was not going to issue that and prevent people from moving about in the state. Uh, what he is doing is essentially closing up brick and mortar businesses um, that aren't deemed to be COVID-19 essential services. We could look at the next slide. I think you're clicking them for me, Nate. Um, so what the governor's done is they've identified a list of essential services that are allowed to essentially keep operating uh, in person. Other, other folks are, are required to or, or directed to uh, do as much telecommuting, do as much remote work as you can. For, for the businesses that are identified on the list of essential services, they are allowed to continue going to work uh, physically and they are allowed to continue uh, operating brick and mortar facilities um, for reasons that we'll get into. And the encouragement there is obviously for businesses to continue to um, operate, but to do it with respect to uh, social distancing and make sure they honor uh, as much social distancing uh, as possible. Um, so what are the categories of essential services? Well, you know, the obvious ones I think are, are healthcare, public health, human services, um, and you can go to the, the MASS website and get into the details under each of these subheadings and we can talk about some of them as well. But obviously anything that's COVID-19 is gonna be um, deemed essential, um, and other health services as well. So doctor's offices are still open. Certainly there's gonna be limitations in, in getting back to, uh, getting to your doctor's appointments. Uh, Non-elective surgeries have been essentially postponed, but those are gonna be basically open for business uh, at your doctor and your, your medical provider's discretion. Law enforcement, first responders, food and agriculture, energy, wastewater, transportation, public workers. And under each one of these different categories, they kind of spell out what you need to do and, and which specific, um, you know, why they're gonna be allowed to continue operating due to COVID-19. And a lot of them are obvious. Obviously we need to keep food uh, going to our grocery stores. We need to keep law enforcement out there for public safety monitoring this law, of course, they're, they're gonna have to be doing that as well. Transportation and logistics, the trains are still gonna run, obviously, with some limitations there. And look at the next slide, Nate. Communications and information technology, that's really focused on businesses that are, are out there focusing on COVID-19, but it's also focusing on you know, regular businesses and making sure that IT can function. Uh, I know in our office uh, in Boston, we have a couple IT folks uh, that are working on a kind of a staggered basis because they're so critically important. Um, we always knew they were critically important, but they're more 
important than ever and they're basically there to handle any remote IT issues that your businesses might have. So they're gonna be allowed to continue operating. And then there's another category for community-based essential functions and government operations. And there's a few sort of interesting um, ones that are listed in there. Um, you know, a couple that jump out at me, um, you know, if legal services is something that is listed there, but there's a special caveat there that it's supposed to be uh, for critical functions and there, and also to be focused upon, um, you know, not prejudice, prejudicing your client. Um, so that's really what the focus is. But for those that need to practice legal services, obviously you have the ability to do it remotely and that's encouraged. But if you have something that's gonna affect a critical sector issue is the language, or you're facing prejudice to your client, uh, obviously you can, in fact, as I read the, the guidance, uh, continue to engage in work uh, physically and go into your office if you need to. I think most law firms are taking the view that they're having lawyers, assistants, paralegals work remotely, and they're having just a few IT people in the office. But if there's something, a service that someone needs to provide, for example, the courts are still open for emergency motions, if you have to go in and file a, a temporary restraining order, you need to get injunctive relief. You need to file anything related to COVID-19 and you need to get into court. I know um, uh, a lot of the towns and cities in Massachusetts had to run into court quickly and file emergency motions postponing elections. Uh, obviously that's all still permitted. Restaurants and, and bars, as you know, are still allowed to operate as provided they're doing takeout uh, food. So that's how a lot of the businesses and restaurants are, are continuing to survive and that's that's very important. Notably, uh, and liquor stores are still open, that's been deemed uh, essential under the law. Medical marijuana um, has also been, uh, dispensaries have been deemed essential, but recreational marijuana has not. Um, there, there was a law, there was a bill introduced last night that would allow restaurants to uh, serve alcohol for takeout, which in, under normal circumstances would violate a myriad of local liquor laws. But that's kind of an interesting one. Um, I see Nate smiling there a little bit on my screen on that one. Um, so there is the opportunity to pick up, uh, maybe the opportunity if it goes through the, to um, you know order out for food and alcohol. Um, hotels are exempted as well. They're a community-based essential function, so hotel workers continue to work. And then there's there's other things that are kind of obvious, chemical, defense industry, industrial base, anything research related to COVID-19 and all these sort of essential services. So those are gonna be continuing to be run. But I think important to keep in mind is that it is not a general shelter in place order that some other states have issued. Um, there are a lot of functions that are still gonna be open in Massachusetts provided they are essential. And if they are essential, you're encouraged to practice social distancing when you do that. And um, we'll get to that a little bit later, but there are exceptions for that too. For example, the restaurant industry, you know, we, we have a, now a limit on a gathering over 10 people, but if there needs to be more than 10 people to function and in terms of providing um, takeout delivery service, that's okay. And they're just encouraged to do as much social distancing as they're, they're able to do. So Nate, if you want to take a look at the next slide here, this is really important and a question that I've been getting from a lot of clients and I'm, I'm sure you have as well, which is if the function of the business is not currently identified uh, on the list of essential services, but you believe it is essential, what can you do about it? And the answer to that is that you can request a designation. Um, you can request that you're going to be designated as essential and there's a, there's a link on the, um, the MASS website where you can, you can make that request. This is kind of similar to what we're seeing in terms of um, what's going on on the federal level where if you're looking to get an exemption, um, if you're under 50 employees, then you need to start taking notes and, and explaining why you get that exemption. The difference is the DOL has specifically said, we don't want any, we don't want to hear from you yet at this point as to why you get an out if you're under 50 employees, um, why you might have a threat to the viability of your business as a going concern. Here, the Massachusetts uh, Commonwealth is saying, we do wanna hear from you 
If you believe that you're essential, you believe that a particular function is essential, please let us know and we'll consider whether or not you are. But they also say that these requ requests should only be made um, if you're not already covered by the guidance. So if you're, if you're covered by the guidance specifically as to what you can and cannot do, they're not looking for requests as to why you get some sort of further um, liberal allowance in terms of what you want to do with your business. If you're covered by the guidance, that's going to be what the rules are for your business and it's going to be set forth there. This, the Commonwealth and the Department of Health has also said to continue checking up on this list of essential services as it is likely going to be amended. As they hear requests from certain business sectors, they're going to be making changes to it. Obviously, we're in such a, um, a fluid situation. Things could change next week. They could change tomorrow. And, and the time frame of this order, um, which currently is in effect until April 7th, that could also be adjusted as well. So continue uh, to review uh, the guidance from the governor and the Department of Health on the Massachusetts website and continue to, um, to monitor whether your business might meet one of these essential function criterion. Can take another look here. Um, this is what I was just talking about is I think most folks know on March 15th, Governor Baker issued an order that was good that said that the groups could not be larger than 25 people um, and that those gatherings would be prohibited. I think we might remember a couple weeks back, which now seems like ages ago when the first order came down that we couldn't have gatherings over 250 people. March 15th, Governor Baker changed it to 25 people and then the emergency order revised it to uh, 10 people. So um, we are prohibited from any of those gatherings and this really applies to everything, community, civic, public, leisure, sporting events, concerts, um, you know, ch church and faith events, weddings, funerals. Um, so this is really just, um, you know, a blunt reminder of the real serious situation we're in and, and that everything is essentially stopping. Um, uh, places of uh, faith and worship are allowed to stay open. And they are allowed to uh, keep their doors open if, if people want to come in, but they have to they have to uh, abide by the ten people rule. So they can't have a group that's larger than ten people. Nate, if you want to go to the next one, um, just a little bit more detail on this: the ten people uh, restriction, the limit on ten people that that applies to um, I'm just watching my clock here is how much time we have. That applies to 10 people in an unenclosed outdoor space, but obviously physical contact of any kind is not, is not prohibited. So some parks are open, I know, in Massachusetts. Some are closed. As I think most of you heard during Governor Baker's press conference, there's not to be any uh, contact sports or touch football or anything like that going on on, on those fields. Um, and you can see the list here, dental and orthodontic offices for emergency procedures only. We just go along to the next slide here. I'll try to speed it up just because I know we've got um, a lot to cover and a, and a, and a fair amount of questions. Um, there's, again, specific exemptions here for homeless shelters, uh, residential schools, special needs students. Nate, if you could go to the next slide. Uh, in terms of the violation of the order, if you're violating the order with respect to your businesses, um, that can be a criminal punishment and could also be up to a $300 fine per day. If you're violating the order regarding um, gatherings of more than 10 people, that's where this slide is applicable, that you have a first offense of a civil warning, a second offense of a civil citation, and then you could be facing criminal liability after that. But very important to note with respect to whether you're, if your business is violating the essential functions rule, if you're operating in a, a business and you're not an essential function and you're still running your brick and mortar facility, there you're subject immediately to a potential $300 a day civil fine and potentially criminal exposure. Nate, if we could look at the next slide. I just want to get into DUA a little bit and um, talk about some important things for employers to keep in mind. 
the, the stimulus package today that looks like it may, be, uh, may have reached agreement between the Congress and the President is likely to be passed and that could extend unemployment um, uh, much further and that we could probably, as, as Chris mentioned, do a separate webinar on this. But in Massachusetts, just some real quick points here. Deadlines are gonna be postponed if, if you miss them due to a COVID-19 situation. You can request um, uh, different ways to file and, and pay unemployment contributions. And then the work share requirements are gonna be interpreted liberally and uh, appeal hearing, hearings are gonna be held by telephone only. Nate, if you could go to the next slide on this one. So the Massachusetts is also very specifically stated that the DUA may pay unemployment benefits if a worker's quarantined due to an order by civil authority or medical professional, and the worker does not need to provide medical documentation. Also, the Mass DUA passed emergency legislation um, which waived the one-week waiting requirements. So normally you have to wait one week to get unemployment. You don't have to do that right now in Massachusetts because of this emergency statute that was passed last week. The next slide here, Nate. I think it's really important to think about temporary workplace shutdowns for employers. There's also been emergency regulations that have been filed for folks that are impacted by COVID-19. If they're gonna be shut down for four to eight weeks, and the eight weeks can also be extended, there's an opportunity for those uh, employees to collect unemployment. So that changes really the landscape and maybe something that employers wanna think about in terms of not going forward with layoffs. If you're able to do a temporary layoff or a furlough for four to eight weeks, the employee can collect unemployment during that time, they can file for unemployment, and they are also able to um, not necessarily look for a new job, they just have to be in touch with their employer and they don't have to go out and show that they're looking for a new job. And this is really important, I think, for it's obviously a benefit for employees and is really important for employers who are thinking, gee, I, I really can't afford to have these folks working for me right now, but I don't wanna lay them off for, you know, you know, they don't wanna do that to their employees. And they're also really worried about getting their employees back. They're worried that after they lay them off, their employees are gonna scatter and they're not gonna be able to bring them back. So the temporary workplace shutdown is something that every employer should be thinking about. You wanna to go to the next slide, Nate. This just lays out the conditions that I just talked about. If you could skip to the next one, Nate. There's also something I think that's always been in existence in Massachusetts that Massachusetts employers and employees should think about, which is the Massachusetts work sharing program developed by the DUA. And this is in existence in many states in the United States, as well as the District of Columbia, and we have it in Massachusetts. What this says is that employees can retain employees on a reduced schedule and thereby reduce the employer's burden to pay wages and at the same time, the employees can receive unemployment compensation of some kind to make up for those lost wages. And this is actually something that a lot of employers should be thinking about. The DUA has also come out and said, by the way, if you get your pay uh, reduced by one third, you're gonna be eligible for unemployment benefits. So that's something really important to think about. It is a great way, I think, to prevent layoffs, provide a benefit to employees, and maintain continuity with your workforce. Just go to the next slide, Nate. I'll try to run through this as quickly as I can because I know that um, we do have quite a few questions that people are curious about. Just importantly, in terms of the work share plan criteria, it has to be submitted to the for approval to the DUA. You can't just go and do it or on your own. Workers can only be on one plan, but employers may have more than one plan for different groups of workers. Each plan has to have at least two workers, and all workers on the same plan must share the same percentage reduction in their work hours. And those reduction in work hours can range from 10% to 60%. So this is something that you do have to get approved by the DUA to do 
um, but I think is an option that employers should really look into. And um, I know all of us as counsel and uh, you and lawyers out there in, in terms of your in advising your clients, that's something you want to think about just quickly. And then we can, we can get into questions while folks or employers are doing remote work. You know, there's really a few different things to think about, which is telecommunication, continuing to have employers work remotely. Issues there are obviously cybersecurity that of confidentiality, make sure that they're worried about that. Wage and hour issues could be really serious. Um, if you're not monitoring that on a regular basis, especially for non-exempt employees. And then there's furloughs. That's an opportunity to do essentially a part-time um, uh, or a temporary layoff. There's some questions there. Vacation time would be owed that I think Nate's going to talk about. And then, of course, we're dealing with, you know, the most unfortunate circumstances of a layoff, of a termination. And for that, be careful about paying final wages, paying vacation time. And then, of course, you've got to be mindful of the, the Federal WARN Act. We don't have a mini WARN Act in Massachusetts, but we have the Federal Worker Adjustment Retraining Notification, which um, if you're doing a layoff and you're doing it very quickly and under is there's ways to do it without notice, but you really are without the regular notice, but you really got to be careful about being tripped up on that. Um, not sure if I have any other slides here, Nate. Is there anything else I was going to get to? Um, just that work share is, is uh, voluntary. I think uh, I covered that, but I covered that has to I covered that it has to be approved. But that's an important point that. Um, employees are not required to participate in a workshare program. They can decline it, and all employees need to be um, full or permanent part-time. Sounds like I'm cutting off a little bit in audio, and I know I'm tight for time, and I went. Yeah, so Jack, let's move on. Over. I think, there, is there, it, let's move to Nate, because I think Nate has one thing to cover about the AG, right? You're on mute. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah, <laughs> thanks. I, my phone should not be on mute, but let me mute. Hey guys, uh, it, this is Chris. I'm going to jump in uh, just because uh, Nate seems to be having a um, a technical issue. Um, but um, there were the the AG put out um, some fair labor FAQs. I think it's important to note um, there are a couple of key points. Um, one was um, if 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 there was this issue of whether you have to pay out vacation leave if you do a temporary layoff. And the AG said that employees do have the right to a payout of their vacation uh, as earned wages, but that um, they won't, if an employee voluntarily agrees not to take the payout and wants to reserve it for when they come back from temporary layoff, so they have time off then, um, that, that the AG's office is not going to bring an enforcement action over that. Though they note that the, that the uh, Fair Labor Division doesn't have any control over private suit, and um, uh, and um, there was um, there was uh, uh, some interesting guidance where the AG said that an employer may require uh, an employee not to work in an event of a, of a COVID-19 exposure, even if there's no requirement or recommendation to quarantine from a medical professional. So um, that's um, it, that's a really interesting. Um, I, I don't know where um, where um, Attorney General Healy he has he thinks that 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 requirement exists in the law, but that's an interesting. I thought that was an interesting take. Sorry, Nate, are you back on? Was able to cover for you? And no, uh, it looks like he's still muted. <laughs> so um, so. I think that's our Chris, last Can you slide, hear me right? now? Now I can. I hope you don't mind me uh, stealing your slides. 
No, no, uh, <laughs> you got it. Um, and I okay. don't really have anything more to add. That there were there were some other FAQs, but I I think they were more advisory uh, with and and kind of general than than uh, than direct. Okay, so I mean, let's. I, there are a couple of questions. We have a few questions. I, I, we're running cl close. We'll stay on probably for another five minutes. We'll try and get to a bunch of them. But um, so, Jack, a question from from an, an attendant was um, you, that you mentioned that employees on a on a, a, a four to eight week temporary shutdown are eligible for uh, unemployment um, insurance benefits. What if a temporary layoff is less than four weeks? Yeah, can you hear me okay? Um, so right now it states that um, that it has to be for a four a four week period to take advantage of that, um, and that that it can then be in that in that four to eight week range, and then can be extended beyond that. So right as it's written right now, um, I don't think they would be available. It wouldn't be available in that context. Uh, for a temporary layoff. Now they could be laid off, still apply for unemployment, um, and I think that they would be, in, in, and they certainly would be entitled to it, but they wouldn't be a part of that program that essentially allows them to be working with their employer to be on call for certain duties. So the four to eight week program is really designed where there's gonna be a significant layoff for, for a significant period of time, and Rather than having that employee, though, do what might be normally expected, which is to look for new work, what they can do is stay in contact with their employer and make themselves available for certain activities. And if their employer does have things that they can do remotely, for example, they can do those activities uh, and they have to be available to do those activities. Set off uh, based upon what you're actually earning as compared to the unemployment insurance. So that's the way it works and it's really designed for that, that type of situation. If it's just gonna be for a two to three week period, um, then it would, that particular program is not available, but you could still you know, make your, make your uh, claim for unemployment, I suppose. And I, I would think um, that, that you'd, you'd be entitled to the benefit in that sense. But the idea of it is really, if someone's going to be laid off for, for at least four weeks, there's a concern that they and, and an obligation normally to start going, going and looking for new work. And this is designed to prevent that. Um, the other option, if it's going to be less of a, um, a layoff, would be to look into the work, you know, work share program where maybe there's an opportunity to keep them on the payroll in some capacity. Um, and collect on and also allow them to get unemployment insurance. Moving to another question. You're on um, mute. Somebody, somebody writes that um, you, um, you can hear me, right? I can hear you, yep. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so somebody said you're on mute. Okay, so um, somebody's asking, I've heard seen commentators speculate that there'll be a rush to lay people off before the act goes into effect. Why would they need to do that? So um, I've seen that commentary too. I think there's a concern that that may happen. I think that um, employers who want to be shut down, who have um, have some concern about, um, there's people who are concerned that employers will say, hey, listen, we're going to have to pay out all these benefits if we keep people on the on the payroll and they want to take leave. Um, um, so there's concern about having to pay those benefits down the line, and if they have concern about those benefits, having to pay those benefits down the line, it may influence them to make a decision about a layoff sooner rather than later. Um, I think it's a valid concern. I can say that um, I can I can say that I think that a lot of, in my experience, a lot of employers are thinking about what the next few months is going to look like or the even for the next year is going to look like in over the next couple of weeks and trying to make determinations on that. So, um, uh, so the reason would be to, to save to save benefit costs. Um, so I think we have time for one more question. Um, 
and um, it, let's see, I'm just going to see somebody I um, have questions on. So somebody wrote, with respect to the payroll tax credit, will employers still be responsible for paying the employer portion of the Social Security and Medicare FICA tax? You're on mute, Nate. <laughs> you have to unmute on the phone and on the screen. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Not sure what's going on, but uh, you can hear me. So, uh, I, on the um, on the the question is whether the employer needs to pay the their, uh, the employer share of the Medicare and uh, Social Security tax uh, if they're claiming the benefits uh, if the sick leave or the FMLA leave under the under the act is that the question Chris now you're on mute yeah it's about the payroll tax credit yeah saying will, yeah. will, will the employer still have to pay the employer portion uh, they will if there is an employer portion to pay after they avail themselves of the credit. Um, so the, as I understand it, the employer can deduct the amount up to the, up to the benefit that the employee is taking from the amount that they would otherwise pay on those buckets um, of the, for their taxes. And if there's, if their amount remains, then yes, they would. If none remains, then no, they wouldn't. And if the m amount of taxes that they would otherwise have to pay is in uh, is insufficient to to um, compensate them for the credit that they are owed, they can apply to the IRS for an accelerated payment of the remaining amount of the credit. Well, Nate, thank you, and thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, it's been really, I'm sorry if we didn't get to your question, but there's a lot of information here. Um, so um, thank you to the BBA for having us. Thank you, Jack and Nate. We appreciate it. I hope everyone stays safe out there and um, stays healthy, and I would look out for more BBA um, webinars like this as, as things develop. As I said, I can't. I have to imagine there'll be once the, the stimulus bill goes into effect, we'll probably see some type of multidisciplinary um, program on that. So, but thank you all for being such great active participants.